Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill each of our hearts as we bring into this space all that this week has held in our lives, what this week has held in our world, in our neighborhood. We bring them all now before you, offering them into your care with hearts open to receive what you will speak to your people. Amen. Last week, those of you who were leading us spoke of the tension we feel during Eastertide. On the one hand, we proclaim the resurrection and joyfully celebrate God's victory and power to save. And almost in the same breath, we feel the pangs of death all around us in significant personal losses, in the darkness of depression, in the twisted legacy of racism, in the suffering throughout this world that God loves. We wait through Lent and anticipate this great breath of life that flows through us at Easter. And even as it comes sweeping in and we sing with confidence, that love has the final word, there's this, and yet. I was moved by your honesty and hope last week, both of those things, your honesty about where we find ourselves and your hope in God's power. So thanks to those of you who are leading. How much more was this true for the people who first received these texts that we've heard this morning? Those who first heard the prophecies of Isaiah were displaced people who had come as captives to a foreign land, completely defeated, and not knowing whether they or their children would ever return. They were humiliated and threatened with the loss of their traditions and even their identity. And so they turned to retelling God's powerful deeds of the past, going all the way back to the Exodus, to help themselves believe that this horror too could be redeemed and that God would restore them. And as for John's vision of Revelation, this unveiling of the reality of God's reign and God's ultimate authority, Many of the first to hear this were new followers of the way, new disciples of Jesus, many of whom were poor, living in a violent empire where death was a spectacle of entertainment in the arenas and an empire whose leaders went to elaborate lengths in congratulating themselves as creators of peace and publicly displaying images of themselves as gods with the power to Give kingdoms and take them away. And so these folks lived with the threat of arrest and interrogation and sometimes even death just for being associated with this new movement that was suspect at best. And no, the 
the focus of persecution at worst. For all of these people, these ancestors of our faith, it was painfully clear that they could not rescue themselves. It was pretty obvious that they were powerless to design their own deliverance. And because of this painful awareness, they were open to putting their hope and trust in God. Now, we are not under the same intensity of threat, and yet we see the excesses of violence perpetrated in and beyond by our nation in its structures of power and authority, and we too wonder when and from where redemption will come. Yet somehow, even as we notice all these things around us, if we're not touched personally by some sense of our own inadequacy to save the world or even our small parcel of it, we still manage to maintain a measure of this illusion that we are self-sufficient and in control. And so it is in the more closely held places of our lives, any part that becomes unsettled, any unfinished business from our past that rises to the surface or is exposed, any place in our life where we feel disoriented, afraid, at a loss, or in despair, any part of us that notices with dread that we can't, in the end, save ourselves, is a place that is being opened to being changed by coming into contact with this one whom God raised from the dead. Those places that become vulnerable and exposed in our lives are our best chance at being open to being changed by God. And Christ is always messing with our assumptions about the method of transformation We don't seem to get our way. We don't seem to get our preferred versions of how love has the last word. It often doesn't look like what we might wish for. And maybe it's true that those of us with quite a lot of material comfort need to have our assumptions messed with and turned upside down on a regular basis. Jesus leads us tenderly to the waters of life, and he won't force us, but instead offers his own life and his very body as a picture of how to get there. A lamb who is a shepherd. That's a pretty strange picture when you stop to think about it. A slaughtered lamb who by outward appearances seems powerless, and good for nothing but maybe a meal, is in reality our guide and protector. Really? This slaughtered lamb is the one who gives shelter in our helplessness? Is it possible, dare we believe, that Jesus, by choosing this ultimate vulnerability, has accessed a power that we can hardly believe is real. 
The way of the lamb is not a vision of strength that we can easily sign on to. It's not what we've learned to think of as strength. And we've learned really well how to hide our pain and weakness, to deny our hopelessness and compensate for our places of confusion. But those are the very places where we might receive the breath of life and the new creation that is breaking into our world. In John's vision, we have this multitude waving palm branches and dressed in white, both symbols of victory. And these are those who have come out of the great ordeal, who belong to the Lamb and who now worship day and night before God and find shelter with God. And Jesus has been through his own great ordeal which is why his testimony is powerful and trustworthy for us. If he who has been through death speaks peace to us, then surely there is real reason for hope. If belonging to Christ means anything for us, it has to mean that we are not alone in our pain. Christ lifted up is an enduring sign to all of humanity. You are not suffering alone. The one who says to the prisoners, come out, was a prisoner. The one who will feed the hungry ones and quench our thirst said from the cross, I am thirsty. This one who has known what it means to be comfortless now lives and comforts his people and has compassion on his suffering ones. The lamb is strong, and yet his strength always looks so different from what we expect. And this is the kind of strength, this is exactly the kind of strength he's asking us to be open to, a strength made perfect in weakness. And forgive me for repeating myself on that particular point, but I find that most of us aren't really eager to flesh that out in our lives. Who can blame us? Who wants to explore their own weakness? Most of us, very understandably, don't engage with our weakness until it's pretty unavoidable. And even then, we try to escape it, or we fight it, or we're going to rise above it. But it turns out we can't engineer our own rising. We can't simply overlay the name of Jesus on our culturally shaped ideas and our economic assumptions, the pictures of success that we breathe in just by living where we live. And friends, let's not deceive ourselves that we aren't really fairly good capitalists and maybe actually worse, even though we resist it, that we aren't taken in by the idea that really the world's fate is up to us and we'd better not slack off in bringing true justice and well-being on earth by doing our part and then some. But Christ is asking a much deeper, more transforming allegiance 
The kind of allegiance that not only could get us killed like these early, early martyrs, but the kind of allegiance that will get our hearts broken. Sometimes I wonder which we find more perilous. Giving ourselves over to love, to this love that we see in the Lamb, will mean having our hearts broken. Like Christ Jesus, as people of resurrection hope, we are misfits in the world, having our hearts broken time and again as we are anticipating the new creation. It's almost that by hoping for something more and better, we set ourselves up for this. But living with faith, living with hope, living in the reality of God's love is costly. And what we find is we are filled with this trust and hope and the love that drives out fear. These things also drive out all other loyalties. And all the parts of ourselves that we were clinging to, clinging to for the reassurance that we can do it and we're put together and we're in control. When we open ourselves to God's way of seeing the world, in which everyone is deeply beloved, of course we grieve seeing violence done in our name with our money. We are hurt seeing that everyone does not have what they need. And we ask, how long? Perhaps with Paul, we're completing in our bodies Christ's suffering as we groan with all of creation for the feast in which everyone has a place of dignity and everyone is fed and no one has a reason to shed another tear. We find comfort in these words because we do know our need. And how we long for God to swallow up death forever. How we long for God to lift this heavy shroud that's bearing down on all people. The taste of our own tears is still salty on our own lips. And it is in this, our own places of great loss and failure and paralyzing fear in our deepest vulnerabilities where we experience God's power to save. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. We're moved by this when we know how much we need shelter. Sometimes I think that's why a Bob Dylan song can be more appealing than a hymn or even going to church when we're in actual pain. And Dylan's great, I mean, I'm a fan, but I just hope that we can recognize that Christ himself is urging us to be honest about our broken heart. And if his church is not a safe place for that, I don't know why we're here. And you who are closely acquainted with grief, those of you who have gone through deep valleys with honesty before God and honesty with yourself and your friends, are the ones who are best equipped to offer deep companionship and compassion to others as they walk through their own dark valleys. 
And I'm grateful for the way we do open our hearts to each other. And I hope that we will take even greater risks with the Spirit's help to be real with one another about what is breaking our hearts. And let's be honest that in the way of the Lamb, our first task is not to fix it, but to let our broken heart be our teacher and open us to receive more fully the love that will not let us go. There was a portion of Isaiah that comes right after that was not read this morning. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It's counterintuitive, like the cross and resurrection. Like much of Jesus' life and teachings, it's counterintuitive how we come into healing by looking squarely into the darkness and falling on the mercy of our God, who, like a mother, has inscribed us on the palms of her hands. From the beginning, as far back as we can go, God has this habit of meeting people in times of deepest distress with compassion, comfort, refreshment, and the very breath of life. We have a shepherd who is also the lamb, and he leads us by going first through the darkest valley. Seasoned by his own suffering and having tasted the first sweet fruit of life, Christ calls us to trust the one who will wipe away all tears. Calling to us from the other side of death, he calls us to hope. May it be so.